Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. The idea for today's conversation came to me, believe it or not, on Super Sunday or around Super Bowl Sunday as uh, I was preparing to write a column about the rise of legal sports betting in the United States, which is now a multi-billion dollar business, even though uh, only a few years ago it was uh, practically ostracized uh, by the sports leagues who are now completely uh, embedded in the betting business. And it got me thinking about the role of instant gratification, risk-taking, impulse, uh, pleasure rushes, and all the things related to that and how they pervade our society, how pleasure-seeking pervades our society, and how that may relate ultimately to the quality of not just our social life, but our political discourse as well. And so in the course of making those connections, I thought, well, who could we have on to discuss that who really knows that world better than anyone else? And the obvious answer came back, Dr. Anna Lemke, who is our guest today. She is, um, it, it's hardly doing justice to Anna's range of interests and expertise to describe her as a psychiatrist and expert on addiction, because she is all of those things affiliated with uh, the Stanford University School of Medicine, where she is uh, a professor and medical director of addiction medicine. But she's also a very thoughtful uh, writer for general audiences about the issues of addiction uh, and um, the complicated uh, relationship between addiction and other aspects of our economy and our society. And her most recent book, which has reached a very wide audience as a New York Times uh, bestseller, is called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, uh, which I have read, and I certainly will recommend it to all of you. But uh, we're going to talk about the role of this neurotransmitter chemical in our brains called dopamine and the surprising ways it affects our daily behavior with Dr. Lemke. Um, and, but before we do that, I, I also want to say that I felt it would be pertinent to have her on, a sh even though she's not a political person, she's neither a political scientist nor, to my knowledge, a particularly active person in partisan politics, but she was willing to explore, at least to some extent, the connection between the sort of uh, dopamine rushes we get from drugs and gambling and other activities like that, and the dopamine rush that uh, we get in politics sometimes uh, from consuming demagogic uh, rhetoric and consuming extreme arguments uh, in the media and so on. And so without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Anna Lemke and thank her for coming on Times Like These. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. That was a lovely introduction. So Anna, sort of the uh, classical interpretation of both capitalism and democracy in political and social theory involves notions of deferred gratification. Max Weber famously attributed sort of the success of capitalism to the spread of a self-denying Protestant ethic. We think of democracy 
as a system of government that requires people to pause, to deliberate and think things over before they reach a decision. And yet what you write about is a society that's decreasingly capable of deferring gratification, a society that in many ways is kind of hooked on dopamine and the instant rush of pleasure it delivers to our brains. Tell me a little bit more about why you would describe the United States as a dopamine nation. The success of capitalism, if I may uh, hypothesize, uh, is really grounded in the idea that we are all ultimate seekers, never satisfied with what we have, always looking for more. And, and, and I think, you know, capitalism does a marvelous job uh, exploiting or taking advantage of that aspect of human nature. The, the problem is that, um, that the sort of pinnacle of capitalism or the tipping point is when we have all become um, addicted consumers. And in, in essence, I think we have possibly arrived at that stage in capitalism. And it has to do with the mismatch between our ancient wiring and the world that we've created. We have evolved over millions of years of evolution to reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain. We don't need to think about doing that. We do it reflexively. In fact, we, we need to think when we do the opposite of that. And that is a great uh, neural system in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, which is the world that humans have existed in for most, most of the time that humans have been around, but which is no longer the case for the, approximately the last 200 years. We now live in this world of increasing abundance where we have not just our basic needs met, but so much more. In fact, we have now reached a point where almost every human behavior uh, has become drugified in some way. And what I mean by that is that a drug is something that releases a whole lot of dopamine in our a reward pathways in the brain and does it very quickly and does it in higher quantities than we were really intended uh, to receive. Um, and even behaviors which were previously thought of as healthy, uh, like exercise, like uh, playing games together, like uh, connecting with other people, um, have now, uh, you know, through technology and through innovation and through our global supply chain and through the internet, have become drugs such that they can release an enormous amount of dopamine all at once uh, and do so with a literally infinite quantity. Um, so I like to think if like, you compare TikTok to cocaine, like eventually even the worst cocaine addicted person is going to run out of cocaine, but we will in essence never run out of TikTok. Uh, so th that means that those of us who are vulnerable to addiction, and people do come into this world with different degrees of vulnerability to that problem, but those of us who are vulnerable to addiction now find themselves living in a life-threatening world. And those of us who are not vulnerable to addiction or who are less vulnerable now find ourselves uh, getting addicted to all kinds of things, um, myself included. Um, so, so that means it's, it's, a, it's a much more complicated and dangerous world, but in paradoxical ways, it's essentially the paradox of plenty how it is that, uh, that, that this world of overwhelming overabundance has become dangerous for us. You have a sentence in your book, which really struck me. 
I thought it was very astute and has a lot of, uh, uh, it's very suggestive. The sentence is, any behavior that leads to an increase in dopamine, and that is release of dopamine in the brain, has the potential to be exploited. Elaborate on that for us a little bit. Learning releases dopamine in the brain's reward pathway. Um, if you take a rat and you put it in a maze with a lot of cool stuff to explore, and then you slice open that rat's brain, what you see is an intense arborization of dopamine-releasing neurons in the reward pathway of the brain, commensurate with what you would see with a single injection of cocaine. If you then pre-medicate that rat with cocaine or methamphetamine and expose that rat to that elaborate maze, you will see no additional arborization of dopamine neurons, which means that cocaine and methamphetamine essentially usurp our ability to learn. So there are a couple couple of important pieces in there. The first piece is that anything in today's world can and is being made addictive, including, again, things that we would typically associate as healthy behaviors, things like learning, uh, things like reading. You know, I talk about my own uh, my own reading addiction especially to a, a, a genre novel, um, romance novels, which is always a bit embarrassing to admit, but there it is. Um, but, you know, people are now getting addicted to uh, all kinds of things that we think of as good for, or used to think of as good for us, exercise. Um, you know, online chess has made chess uh, addictive. I'm now hearing from patients who are dealing with online chess addiction. So what are the factors that make that possible? Well, as you say, it has to release dopamine in the, in the reward pathway. The more dopamine it releases and the faster it releases that dopamine, the more likely it is to get addicted. But when we think, uh, we, the more likely it is to be addicted. But when we think about the ecosystem, because addiction will always be this interaction between our neural circuitry and the world that we live in. And the world that we live in has four factors that make it a very addictogenic world. Number one, we have enormous access. One of the biggest risk factors to getting addicted to any drug is simple access to that drug. It's something that we take for granted all the time. But if you live in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on the street corner, you're more likely to get to try those drugs and more likely to get addicted. If you go to a doctor who's free with their prescription pad when it comes to opioids and benzos and stimulants, you are more likely to be exposed to that drug and more likely to get addicted to that drug. So access is huge. Quantity matters. A lot of times people think they don't really count this, but the more we use of our drug and the more often we use it, especially daily use, the more likely we are to cause those neuroadaptive changes in the brain that essentially characterize the addicted brain. And again, when you look at digital drugs, you know, media, it, it's literally an infinite quantity. Uh, the other aspect is potency, which gets back to how much dopamine it releases. And what we've seen today is that ancient drugs like opioids and alcohol and uh, cannabis have been made much more potent than their precursors. Uh, but we also, again, have drugs that didn't exist before, uh, video games, uh, social media, online versions of uh, behavioral addictions like gambling. Pornography is an enormous problem in this country. One statistic that I am horrified by, but I also actually love because it's so illustrative, is that in 2019, humans consumed like 6,000 centuries of uh, time on Pornhub or something like that. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, so we've got access, we've got quantity, we've got potency, and then we've got novelty. 
One of the ways that um, people with addiction have known for centuries to overcome tolerance to their drug, meaning when the drug stops working, is to change it up just a tiny little bit to make it similar to the old drug, but like add one new molecular moiety or combine it, you know, with another drug and and to make it more potent. And of course, the, the internet does that incredibly, right? Like it used to be enough you could just play a game and that was fun and release dopamine. No, now you've got to uh, play a game in front of a huge audience of people to make it fun. Okay, then that stops being fun. Now you've got to play a game in front of a huge audience that gets a huge social media following and you have to bet money on it because like otherwise it's just not going to be fun anymore. And this kind of escalating in almost everything we do just pervades every aspect of our society. Well, I, I confess that I got addicted to crossword puzzles. Yes. And then I... But then I traded up to Wordle, uh, which is <laughs> the more potent form of crossword puzzles. And, and and this, you're laughing, and I mean it in a somewhat humorous way, but after reading your book, I decided to try abstinence on crossword puzzles. Um, and the experience, and it worked. I haven't had a crossword puzzle in two weeks. It, it, I don't mean to make light of addiction by saying that, but I've learned from the experience, which is that in hindsight, I was maybe I shouldn't say this publicly, I was spending time when I was supposed to be working, finishing that crossword puzzle. Right. Just as you, Anna, confess in the book that you were <laughs> sneaking trashy romance novels in on on time that was supposed to be spent doing your patient notes. And we're we're making light of that, but I think it gets at the definition you work on with respect to addiction, which is uh, a behavior we persist in even after we understand the consequences to be negative. Right. Um, And tell us a little bit about how general you think it is. Now, I think we're all aware in broad terms of the destruction that what we consider to be, you know, quote unquote, maybe real drugs like opioids and meth are doing. But what's your perspective on things that you are defining as drugs that video, porn, gambling, how how much destruction do you think those are doing and what's the nature what's the particular nature of the destruction that they that or harm that they're causing yeah great question let me start by saying that most people who drink alcohol will not get addicted to alcohol right lifetime prevalence is somewhere between 10 and 15% of americans uh will struggle with an alcohol use disorder so most people who uh gamble or watch pornography uh, or engage with social media, or uh, you know, trade currency, or play video games. Uh, most people who do those behaviors will not get addicted to those behaviors, even though they may struggle at some point. You know, like you did with with your crossword puzzles. Then, like, oh, gee, this is kind of encroaching in my life in ways that I'm don't feel all that great about. But you know, you make a correction, and, and you're able to make the correction, and you move on. But what what we are seeing uh, in the world of uh, you know psychiatry and mental health is patients who are coming in with devastating devastating addictions to things like social media video games online pornography and other forms of sex addiction uh you know devastating <clears throat> a news and media and youtube consumption addictions um and, and so just to kind of characterize that a little bit these folks are coming in incredibly depressed anxious unable to sleep, deteriorated self-care, and in many instances, suicidal, uh, thinking about ending their lives. 
Um, and the trajectory that they describe is very similar, if not identical, to the trajectory that we see when people become addicted to drugs and alcohol. People usually start out using for one of two reasons, to have fun or solve a problem. If it works for them, they will re-engage or reuse that drug. Over time, they'll build up tolerance such that they need more and more or more potent versions to get the same effect. Then they'll be you know, spending a lot of time, energy, creativity, getting their drug, using their drug, hiding their drug. And at some point, and this is really key to understand addiction, we lose some degree of our agency or autonomy. So although we may have chosen to initiate the use of that drug, the changes in our brain lead us to actually not be able necessarily to choose to stop or to have such great difficulty stopping that the cravings and compulsions to reuse overcome any discipline or willpower to stop, even in very disciplined people who otherwise demonstrate enormous willpower. So this, this concept of hijacking the reward pathway, I think, is so central for people to really understand what happens in addiction. And I always say to people who maybe have not experienced addiction themselves or in somebody they love, try putting your smartphone away for 24 hours and just observe what happens in your mind and brain. Observe all of the rationalizations your brain will come up with in a nanosecond for why you really need to go back on your phone, even though you committed to a 24-hour digital fast. And, and that can be incredibly uh, illuminating. Plus, most of us, I think, would be able to find some kind of addiction in our lives these days. You know, that reminds me of a comment I once heard Stevie Nicks, the great uh, vocalist for Fleetwood Mac, make about her cocaine addiction. She said it was the last thing she thought about at night and the first thing she thought about in the morning. And I must say, that's true of me and my smartphone. Yes. It's the last thing I look at at night, and it's the first thing I look at in the morning. And that's a very, no pun intended, very sobering thought, actually, Yeah. to think that here I am doing with my smartphone what Stevie Nicks used to do with cocaine. Of course, I think a lot of people listening are probably, you know, appropriately wondering, you know, well, come on, a smartphone, that's not really as destructive as cocaine and and maybe that's right but you um you float a phrase which as you acknowledge you are borrowing from an historian david courtright a, a concept called limbic capitalism and the point being that our economic system has figured out companies have figured out a way to uh you know work with the brain's neural pathways to make Ordinary non-druggy things like cell phones work like drugs. And the limbic is the reference to the limbic complex in the brain, which rules emotions. What would you say if somebody were to ask you, do we have a limbic democracy going on here? We have maybe have a limbic economic system. Uh, how about limbic democracy? True, false? Does it exist? Does it not exist? In what way might that expression make some sense? I think that expression does make sense. And, and here's here's what I would say about it. It and again, I, I loved how you introduced me as not a political person. That's great because I'm really, I'm really not. And so I'm I'm glad that that's like out there and up front. Um, I mean, of course, I have my my political views, but yes, I'm not uh I, I'm not deeply informed in those arenas. 
But given my knowledge of addiction and the brain and, and how all that works, what what I observe is that the same weird thing that happens to us when we're chasing dopamine uh, around drugs and alcohol and other acknowledged behavioral addictions like like gambling uh, is that we lose the ability re really to see true cause and effect. And so what can feel like is very purposeful uh, activity leading to a certain end is not in fact accomplishing anything, but instead what we're responding to is those spikes of dopamine followed by a dopamine deficit state to compensate, uh, which is really the state of craving and then the need for another hit. And so I think what we're seeing, you know, in the political discourse now is a whole lot of people who have the sensation that they're doing a lot of work um, and like, and, and actually, you know, and, and I think, you know, their intentions uh, may be very good, you know, the, the desire to solve the problems of our country, but because of the medium in which we are now uh, supposedly doing this work, you know, the, the, the world of Twitter and what have you, I think what's happening is we're really all circling the drain and we're not in fact getting very much done at all. And instead what we're doing is we're chasing dopamine. We're chasing the dopamine hit that we get by sharing an emotion at the same time that someone else has an emotion. So that's hugely reinforcing for humans. It's we're natural tribal creatures. We're social creatures. We need to connect in order to uh, you know, guard against enemies, to, uh, you know, to steward scarce resources, to find mates. One of the ways that we do that is by uh, having the release of dopamine when we make human bonds. One of the ways that we make human bonds is by experiencing an emotion at the same time as somebody else, whether that emotion is uh, love and joy or outrage. Um, and so I think what's happened is we're getting these huge hits of dopamine uh, through this kind of shared emotional experience that's happening in the virtual space that is incredibly reinforcing and causing us to want to do those things again and has the illusion of actually uh, getting work done or solving problems when in fact it's not accomplishing anything at all. I suspect that owning the lives is a huge dopamine rush for some people when they, when they feel like they've owned the libs or whatever the equivalent on the left might be. So let's shift, since this is a podcast, at least uh, in theory, about re <laughs> re restoring the political center. Let's talk about how the balance gets recovered in people who are addicted to almost anything. You've, you bring out the concept in your book of homeostasis, which is the healthy balance that the brain, as you describe it, actually naturally seeks between pleasure and pain. In addicted people, of course, the pursuit of pleasure, as you describe it, leads inevitably to pain. And it's extremely difficult. Withdrawal is nothing but this extreme pain that follows on the extreme pleasure seeking of addiction. Is there, um, first of all, describe to us how homeostasis works and whether or not you regard there being a relationship between a society's general homeostasis 
and the ability of its component individuals to get to homeostasis. Yeah, great. Okay, so first of all, we all have a baseline level of dopamine firing in the brain. Uh, you know, we pulse dopamine kind of continuously. Dopamine is our uh, reward, motivation, and pleasure neurotransmitter, as we talked about. When we do something that's positive or reinforcing, we increase our dopamine firing temporarily. Um, but the driving force in all uh, living organisms is a drive toward homeostasis or baseline so that our brains will work very hard to get back to baseline dopamine firing levels. And, and we do that um, first by going below baseline levels of dopamine firing. So we decrease our dopamine production. We uh, involute our postsynaptic dopamine receptors, not just to those baseline levels, but actually below baseline before after a certain period of time, going back to baseline levels of dopamine firing. So when we're living in this dopamine-saturated world, constantly bombarding this reward pathway with these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors in every aspect of our lives, what happens is that with repeated exposure to uh, high dopamine-releasing re substances and behaviors, basically our brain is reeling in an attempt to try to adapt to that and does so uh, by seriously downregulating dopamine transmission. Uh, so that eventually uh, our drugs stop working. We need more and more of them. This is called tolerance. Uh, we, 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 do, we don't get much of a dopamine spike at all anymore, but that after effect goes way below baseline into this dopamine deficit state, which then can actually be chronic, where now we're sort of living in this in the state of anhedonia or inability to take joy because of the constant bombardment of these highly reinforcing um, phenomena. So the idea is that if we abstain long enough, eventually our brain will get the memo and start to re-upregulate in dopamine transmission. But we hardly do that because we're these rewards chase us down and they're very difficult to resist. And that's essentially the problem. That what feels like it is a correcting, you know, a problem of like say anxiety or depression is actually really just driving us deeper into this dopamine deficit state. And you know, your question about what that means for us as societies and as nations, um, I think, you know, the, the, I believe that we are not just as individuals walking around in this dopamine deficit state, craving more and more, not to get high, but now just to feel normal. Uh, we're doing that as entire societies and that all of us are essentially having this like profound physiologic alteration uh, which I think explains the rising rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide uh, all over the world, but especially in rich nations, which is incredibly puzzling, right? Like, why is it that the wealthiest countries in the world with the most access to state-of-the-art mental health treatment are the places where we're seeing the highest rates of suicide, uh, uh, people uh, with you know debilitating anxiety, more physical pain, uh, more mental anguish? And of course, there are lots of explanations proffered for this. Oh, it's the you know the socioeconomic disparity, it's uh, childhood trauma, it's social dislocation. Of course, all of that may be playing a role, but I would say it's the paradox of plenty and the, the ways in which overabundance itself, especially given our ancient wiring, is a huge human, human stressor. And that the result is to put us all into this chronic dopamine deficit state such that we're, we're basically you know, walking around, most of us depressed and unhappy, 
Uh, and, you know, many of us end up, you know, getting mental health treatment, seeking out pills, which maybe make us more depressed and unhappy in certain instances. Um, instead of what we really need to do is to uh, begin to uh, appreciate uh, the drugified nature of the world that we live in. And in fact, uh, build a world within a world where, where we create these moats between ourselves and the constant titillation of, of all the products on offer. And even go further than that and, and intentionally seek out pain in, in our lives. Because, uh, you know, what happens when we intentionally engage in painful activities, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, physical things like exercise or ice cold water immersion or uh, mentally effortful things like prayer and meditation, uh, cleaning out the, you know, the, the junk under our closet. What, what happens when we do that through uh, something called the science of hormesis, and hormesis is Greek for to set in motion, what we're doing is we're telling our body, oh, I have an injury. And in response to injury, what the body does is essentially start to upregulate those feel-good neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. So for example, if you just look at exercise, the evidence is overwhelming that uh, that exercise is immediately toxic to cells. But over the latter half of, let's say, an hour of exercise, dopamine levels slowly start to increase, along with serotonin, norepinephrine, you name it. And those levels will remain elevated for hours afterwards before going back down to baseline levels of dopamine firing, which is really profound because it means we can get our dopamine indirectly uh, without having to go into this dopamine deficit state. And this dopamine deficit state is really what characterizes the state that I think we both as individuals and nations inhabit today. So you're not advocating some kind of masochistic uh, alternative. What you're talking about when you refer to pain is not sort of lashing yourself on the back and waiting for a corrective dopamine rush, but actually more, more I think uh, in layman's terms, deferral of gratification or the acceptance of a kind of a short-term cost in return for a long-term benefit, which is exercise being a classic example of that. Like, you know, it's going to hurt, no pain, no gain in the gym and so on. But afterwards, there's a, there's a, a truer kind of well-being than that, which comes from, you know, smoking pot or whatever. Um, and that brings me back to where we started, um, which is this idea that there's something about modern society that both requires a citizen to work well, it requires a citizenry that is capable of deferring gratification. And yet many of those same institutions yes. also feed or create the temptation for the uh, actors within those institutions to exploit mankind's, if I may use that old fashioned word, uh, you know, proclivity to seek the instant gratification. Right. So. Again, I think I, I want to press you a little bit for a comment on the role of deferred gratification as a kind of an, a personal habit in the health of a citizen. Not only do I agree that we need to to defer, you know, gratification. I mean, what what we've essentially lost is what psychologists call distress tolerance. We have really uh, lost the ability to sit with discomfort to sit with uncertainty, to sit with unknowing, and just tolerate those emotions, um, which is absolutely essential to do if we're going to be able to create anything new and useful, if we're going to be able to actually learn something new and useful, if we're going to be able to 
tackle a very difficult problem and solve it together with other people. Uh, we have to strengthen our capacity for distress tolerance, or basically just sitting with uncomfortable emotions. But but I guess I would, uh, so I agree with you. We, we have this culture of instant gratification, and the result is not only that people are, are not allowing themselves to tolerate the distress necessary to actually get good political work done, uh, but uh, furthermore are deceiving themselves because the dopamine gives them the illusion that they are in fact getting good work done when, when no work is really happening at all. Um, but, but I guess I would even take it a little bit further um, because I, I don't even think that just saying, well, we have to learn to delay gratification or wait for our reward is enough. I think that we, we indeed need to embrace a new form of asceticism where we completely reframe our understanding of pain. Because in our culture, we have an idea that pain in any form, physical or mental, is dangerous. And it's dangerous not only because it's painful, but because it sets us up for future pain in the form of leaving some kind of a psychic scar, which then makes us vulnerable to post-traumatic stress disorder or chronic pain disorders or what have you. So we have this idea that we have to immediately eliminate all pain in the moment, or uh, we're going to be you know, more vulnerable for it. And that's where we really need to change the cultural narrative and move toward the understanding, which is based in neurobiology, because we have lots of good science to show this now, that pain is actually good for us, that it makes us more resilient. It makes us physically more resilient. It makes us mentally more resilient. And that we live in a world in which we're so insulated from pain and so exposed to pleasure that we are you know, we are not building up the kinds of mental calluses that we need to actually thrive in the world. So, you know, when when we think about, and of course, you know, every major religion has talked about this in one way or another. People sometimes mistake of what I'm trying to say is that I'm trying to talk about, you know, the, the Buddha's middle way. I'm like, well, Buddha's middle way is fine uh, unless you're living in a world where, uh, you know, you're constantly being titillated. And, and drugs in every form or everywhere. In that world, you actually have to go just to the right of the middle way and intentionally uh, celebrate the inconvenient way and doing things that are um, hard and even a little bit painful. I'm not talking about cutting yourself, like, you know, or, or whipping yourself, like as you had said earlier. Sure. But I am talking about physical pain. I actually am talking about that because we are embodied creatures. We, we have to be in our bodies. Uh, and so I'm talking about walking instead of driving if you're able to walk. Um, I'm talking about um, turning down your heat and actually being cold. Um, you know, I'm talking about all of these little ways in which our, our life can be made harder. And for some people, Maybe they they need a lot of friction in order to be happy. I know I'm one of those people. Like, um, you know, I'm probably at baseline, like quite dysphoric, and so you know, I could I could get addicted to something, or I could, um, you know, create more friction in my life, uh, especially if it's associated with meaning and purpose. Um, you know, in a way that's slowly. I'm this is what I try to do, that that I I hope will in a in a slow way be of some service. 
I think listening to you, Anna, I'm getting a real clear picture of what you really are. You are a dissident. <laughs> oh, okay, you, interesting. You are a dissident. You are in dissent from a prevailing culture that's built around sensation, which is, I think, what you're describing, uh, which I kind of brings us full circle once again, something we talked about before we started recording, which is this, this sort of paradoxical way in which your highly scientific view of the world, which is based in solid medical theory and data, leads you to appreciate some of the truths that were established by traditional religions. Uh, that many of the recommendations you offer in your book are similar to those that the world's great religions have offered. First of all, do you think that's a fair summary of where you come down? And if so, why? Why did you find yourself, I would venture to say, perhaps surprisingly to yourself, coming around to that view? Oh, so that the, the first part, I would agree with you. And what I think is so exciting is that these sort of ancient truths we now have the neuroscience to show exactly what's going on in the brain and how it works. And I love that because it, it reminds me of, uh, I was, I, I, when I first learned about Democritus coming up with the atomic theory, you know, thousands of years ago, that just gives me chills. It's so exciting to me that we as humans could intuit something that science then, you know, thousands of years later uh, can prove or show how it works. And so I think that's what it's, is exciting to me about these ideas, that we intuit them. We, we know on some deep level they're true, and now we have, have science to kind of show how it works. Um, you know, how did I come, come to have these thoughts? I mean, it's, it's a long, longer answer than, than, you, um, you know, than you have time for, that anybody has time for. But it, it's basically a combination of um, some experiences in my own life of profound suffering and finding that um, those experiences were actually a great gift. Um, uh, this was, uh, you know, the, related to uh, a, a child of ours who, who passed away. And I'm um, finding that it, it really kind of reset my brain for, uh, you know, for the world in a way that I really needed to be reset. And again, you know, these are all ancient, ancient truths after darkness comes the dawn and all of that. Um, but also profoundly what I see in my patients. I have seen in the last 20 years more and more people, these coming in with a terrible debilitating depression, anxiety, uh, barely able to get out of bed in the morning. And these are people who come from privilege, who have wonderful families, who have social networks who have access to nature and sports and all of the things that we um, would would associate, you know, with a, a good life. And yet the, these people, especially when it's a young person, they're profoundly despairing and depressed. And I really think that it's because they are inundated with these pleasure substances and behaviors. They've never faced any kind of meaningful challenge and that their reward pathways have been completely reset. Um, and, and that in a desperation to help them, people like me give them more happy pills. And uh, therapists tell them how wonderful they are and try to boost their self-confidence and try to help them find their authentic self and 
teachers, uh, you know, give them accommodations and, and, you know, what have you. And it's all in the wrong direction. What these kids need, I believe, is, uh, you know, uh, the sense of purpose that comes from the touchstone that real life suffering provides. They, and, and when I was growing up, I think we're roughly the same generation. I'm, I'm sure I'm much older than you are, but a few years older, perhaps. They used to talk about character building experiences. Uh, and it was, it was thought, I think correctly, that children were capable of experiencing, you know, tough things, you know, in supervised way on a camping trip or a, a rugged hike or, you know, losing a ball game and uh, having to cope with that. And, and the norm of the society was that this is kind of good for kids because it builds resiliency. And I do agree with you. I think this is sort of a tan tangent, but I, I think that we are losing that or have lost that in our society with the best of intentions, of course. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the powerful takeaways from your work is that we need to restore uh, that kind of experience to its proper place in human development, obviously without, you know, going off into some sort of any kind of gratuitous or abusive form, but that um, perhaps we've overcorrected in that direction. I wanted to, just to conclude what's been uh, a terrific conversation, uh, sometimes I like with our guests to ask them uh, a kind of a little bit of a out of left field question, pluck something from their biography. I noticed on your CV that it said you received your undergraduate degree in humanities from Yale. Now you are a medical doctor and a scientist. And um, I'm just curious how someone who started off, you know, reading literature and poetry and maybe the classics uh, gravitated toward the hard sciences and whether you, I suspect the answer is going to be yes, but whether you're one of those doctors who feels that, uh, uh, undergraduate preparation in something that's not, you know, biochem or chemistry or something like that makes you a better doctor. Um, hmm. well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it makes you a better doctor. And I, I must admit that, um, you know, my undergraduate years were, uh, I think, best characterized by uh, someone who was really lost and didn't know what she was doing. <laughs> and, uh, and that humanities was one of those majors that that you could cobble together sort of with whatever you had taken, a little philosophy, a little sociology, you know, maybe a, a couple math classes. And that was me. You know, I, I just couldn't figure out what I was doing there. Uh, and um, you know, medical school was, it, it was, it made sense to me. It was like, oh, I know what doctors do. Okay. They go around, they try to help people who are sick. And I'm just sort of practical in that way. Like I, I don't, I, I don't know, maybe now I could appreciate an undergraduate liberal arts education. I probably could now really enjoy it and get a, but I'll tell you then I was just completely mystified. I mean, I was just one of those people walking around like, what am I doing here? <laughs> well, something tells me, something tells me you did all right, but I'll tell you that, uh, that's, I'm, I'm glad you answered candidly, uh, because the easy way would have been Anna for you to say, <laughs> oh yes, of course, uh, learning about poetry made me a much more civilized person and enabled me to talk to patients. I will tell you that, uh, I think we have this in common. I felt the whole time I was an undergraduate majoring in something called social studies, <laughs> which I suspect was as vague as humanities. 
I felt the whole time I was stumbling around, not knowing where I was headed. And I guess I still feel that way. So, so perhaps, Anna, you should have been a journalist because, (laughs) because stumbling through college leads to journalism normally, but in your case, it has led to, I think, outstanding, uh, level of insight and, uh, real, uh, what you do helps people. And I think, oh, thank you. Uh, I think everyone should, if they have a chance, take a look at your book and not just Dopamine Nation, but you have another book with the uh, equally provocative title, Drug Dealer MD. That was Anna's book in, that she published in 2016 about the perverse incentives that were creating overprescription of opioids. We could talk all day. Maybe we will get a chance to do another podcast together sometime, but I think we're not going to be able to extend this any further. We're out of time. Anna Lemke, uh, thank you for joining us. And um, once again, um, it's it's been a real privilege to have you on the podcast. Oh my gosh. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs>